Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Tesla definitely on the forefront of people's minds this morning after the SEC sued Elon Musk for misleading the world, frankly, but particularly the markets when he said that he was going to take uh, Tesla private for $420 a share, saying that funding was secured when in reality it wasn't. Shares now of Tesla down uh, by 11%, so uh, definitely uh, seeing a big fall there. David Kudla is founder and chief executive officer and chief investment strategist of Mainstay Capital. David, you're joining us now. You've been bearish on Tesla all along. What's your take on this? What are the declines really stemming from here? Well, the declines today are stemming from the lawsuit by the SEC yesterday, uh, announced uh, just four or five minutes after the close, and we saw what happened in after-hours trading and, of course, what's happening in, uh, in trading today. And, uh, you know, this is a big problem for Elon Musk and for Tesla, obviously. David Kudla, do you ever look at used or pre-owned car prices when it comes to Tesla? Uh, yes. And I was looking, for example, at how they hold their value, and they don't seem to do so. Is that concerning? I, th I think it should be concerning, uh, and I think it's interesting, too, uh, that, that they don't hold their value, uh, as, as some might, might expect. But um, I think Tesla's concern primary concern right now they've got some more immediate issues with their uh, cash position you know their their will they be able to remain solvent uh, their production problems their quality problems their right. service center problems um, and well, you know just the metrics that they're trying to to hit uh, as we go forward here over the, the coming uh, weeks months and couple of quarters. Yeah, I mean, David, to follow up on that, when I asked, you know, why are the shares falling? Is it because there is a feeling that Elon Musk might be kicked out of the position of chief executive officer and what that might mean for the company, both from a capital raising standpoint, as well as directional standpoint? Is it because of concerns of fines that are going to potentially reduce their capital position further? Where's the risk here? Well, it. I think there's a couple of risks. So uh, first, it's that that uh, this is an overhang for the company. Um, there, there was an opportunity where this could have been, uh, there was a settlement in front of uh, Elon Musk and the board on this. And uh, Elon Musk, in his, in his way, uh, decided to push back and fight it. So now there is you know, obviously a risk to shareholders, as, we, as we've seen today. Uh, there will be a risk in being able to raise capital and the, the, the risk of uh, Elon Musk's future with the company, because he could be barred from being a director or officer of a public company. And that's problematic because, you know, there's been estimates that there's $100 or $120 or $140 in the price of Tesla stock as a Elon Musk premium. And, and look, he is a genius inventor. Uh, visionary, you can obviously his his mission is admirable, and the people the you know it's almost a cult following. You know the people that are the customers that are there at the delivery center, you know uh, dressed like they're going to a wedding, receiving their their vehicles. There yeah. is a, a loyal following, 
And if Elon is gone or is forced to be gone from the company, uh, you know, there are analysts out there saying, well, that could be good because of his erratic behavior and there needs to be an adult in the room running the company. The flip side of that is, what Tesla has going for it is this very loyal following who has given Elon Musk and Tesla a lot of passes on broken promises, milestones that haven't been met, cars that are not good quality by a typical standards in the industry. Yeah. And those people, when Elon is gone, they look at Tesla and say, Tesla is Elon and Elon is Tesla and Elon we trust. And if yeah. Elon's gone, they, they lose that. that. I think they lose a lot. And, you know, Pim, to David's point, there are a number of analysts from J.P. Morgan and UBS and a number of other big firms saying that they are concerned that without Elon Musk at the top, Tesla is going to really struggle to raise money. And this is a problem because they're running out of cash. Right. They're burning They're burning uh, cash. David Kudla, do you have any thoughts on the speed with which this action by the Securities and Exchange Commission has been brought after learning that Mr. Musk decided to not go along with the settlement? Well, it's, it's um, you know, when we look at it, and, you know, we were on Bloomberg talking about it that week, it, it was, it just was pretty obvious uh, when you looked at the circumstances very quickly that it, there just wasn't a deal there. And then as more facts came out, it became, I think, quite apparent to a lot of people that um, this had a lot of the elements of what could be called stock manipulation right. or fraud and uh, i think the sec knows they have an open and shut case they there have was a a, did you hear the report here. for example that the reason that uh, I, th- I think it was i can't remember whether it was in the journal or the times but i mean even in our reporting that uh he's selected the actual dollar amount of 420 yeah. go ahead just tell yeah. that story give well, me that 20 well, seconds well that's it i it, and it was and it it was um i don't want to say amusing but unusual that it was actually in the complaint that the SEC stated right. that he uh, uh, added 20% premium to the, the, the stock price at the time, came up with about 419, rounded up to 420 because of the reference to marijuana that that has and that his girlfriend would think that was funny. Right. And, that, and that's not me. That's no, no, that's the SEC, that's in the indeed. SEC well. complaint, and which is unusual but interesting, and I think they – wanted to point that out as a flippant attitude about everything and that's got, that's what that's what's key here that's trying we got to show it, the david we got to leave it there thank you very much for joining us david kudla chief executive chief investment strategist mainstay capital management you're listening to bloomberg John Chambers, he is perhaps best known as being the uh, chairman and the chief executive, former chairman and chief executive of Cisco. He began his career in technology sales at IBM. He also worked for Wang Laboratories before joining Cisco. And he joins us now as the author of a new book entitled Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. John Chambers, thanks very much for being with us. Pim and Lisa, it's going to be a lot of fun and look forward to our conversation. Well, I just want to give full disclosure that I first met John Chambers at a diner in Silicon Valley with another gentleman named Eric Benhamu. And he yes. at that time was running a company called 3Com. And we know what happened to 3Com, which is it doesn't exist necessarily in its form anymore. Cisco, on the other hand, 
went on to bigger and better things. John, maybe you could tell us why you wrote the book and why you believe that startups really demand a different level of attention and how you ran Cisco as a startup really until you left. Well, thank you, Pim. And I very much remember that conversation because Eric is an excellent CEO. And what it talks about, uh, and I decided to write the book. Uh, Originally, I don't like writing. I'm dyslexic. It is really hard to do. But I kept getting the same questions as I talked to startups around the world. I'm now with JC2 Ventures, and we've invested in 16 startups globally and focused very much on how do you scale and grow companies. And I decided to write the book because I kept hearing these same questions from the startups. It didn't matter if you're in Dubai, New Delhi, Silicon Valley, West Virginia, the startup CEOs had the same type of issues and challenges, which were how to scale their company, how do you grow, when do you decide to hire people, how you deal with your challenges and your setbacks. And I love teaching, and that's what I love doing perhaps most of all is building teams. So the lessons is very simple. Uh, I like to share those. You're in a period where you grow or you die. You disrupt or you get disrupted. You catch business and technology trends at the same time. And Eric was a really good competitor, unfortunately. But we had probably five or six really tough big competitors, five or six companies our size, like 3Com and Wellfleet and Synoptics, and then a whole bunch of startups. What allowed us to break away was acting like a startup all the way going from 400 people when I joined Cisco to 75,000 and to be, reinvent ourselves again and again and to learn that setbacks, while you wish you could avoid them, actually make you stronger as you move forward. So sharing that's what I'm after. And I've had the opportunity to be in the front row seat and sometimes in the middle of the playing field as I walk these transitions occur in my home state of West Virginia, in Boston 128, which used to be the Silicon Valley of the world, as mainframe computers, IBM, many computers think Wang, DEC, Data General, PC players, now the Internet, now moving to digitization. So I've seen the movie. I have the scars. I've done some things right. And boy, I've made some mistakes. And I've acquired 180 companies. So I know what it's like to scale companies. So, John, given that vast experience and given the fact that you're currently looking for startups that are worthy of your investment, how well positioned is the U.S. in the fight for you know, future dominance, not only over technology, but in general, uh, with its startup culture? Uh, Lisa, I think you've asked uh, the major takeaway I hope people get from the book. We think of ourselves as the innovation nation. We are not. And interesting enough, the Bloomberg Index on Innovation doesn't have us in the top 10 countries anymore. We think we're the startup nation of the world. That was true in the 90s and 2000s. We used to get 90% of the venture capital into our country uh, 20 years ago, then 10 years ago, 80. Today, it's 50%. And if you watch, we're almost at a 20-year low in terms of startups, i.e. versus where we were uh, two decades ago. The number of IPOs, and you guys know this very well, Lisa, is uh, at a very low level compared to where it was in the 90s. We're excited about doing 230 IPOs in the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ this year, and it's up slightly from the high uh, 180s last year, but we did 400 to 500 per year in the 90s. If you're going to generate 25 to 30 million jobs over the next decade, 
And if you combine with that a requirement to generate another 20 million plus because digitization, uh, automation, artificial intelligence will destroy 20 to 30 million jobs, probably 20% to 30% of our workforce, if we don't get the startup engine going again. And we're too complacent. One of the things I point out in the book is the worst thing you can do the worst thing you can do is keep doing the right thing too long, and that's what gets companies into trouble. And countries like France that you view and, Pim, you would have viewed three or four years ago as the worst place to do a startup have moved to the best place in Europe, going from 140 high-tech startup venture backs per year to 700 in four years. John, I just wonder if you could offer your thoughts about one of the various numbers of points that you make in the book about vision mm -hmm. and strategy and so on. But I thought that one particularly geographic proximity to headquarters or key operational centers, that's like real information you can use. It is. Uh, originally, I thought at, at Cisco, we were building the internet and we were changing the way the world works, lives, learns, and plays. And I thought you could have a company that has people everywhere and it would function just as good as one that had everybody at headquarters. I was wrong. You've got to have uh, economic centers where you can move your teams around as one product does better or another product does not, as you promote people from one function to another. And in this new startup world, uh, if you watch what is happening, we're not just not doing the number of startups we should in this country. It's almost all Northeast Coast, mm. uh, almost all Silicon Valley, and almost yeah. all Texas. We need to bring that across the heartland of America and down to the Southeast. Yeah. So my view is that we need to locate startups at these hubs with universities and pick one or two universities per state and make all 50 state startups because that's where the job creation is going to occur. The yeah. big companies in total will not add headcount uh, this next decade. John Chambers, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. We could talk with you all afternoon. We'd love to. John Chambers, former executive chairman and chief executive officer of Cisco. Now he's the founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures in Palo Alto, California, and the author of a new book, Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. Indeed, uh, Tesla's founder and charismatic chief executive Elon Musk was slapped with a lawsuit from the SEC saying that he was engaged in securities manipulation with his for $20 a share tweet. He said that funding was secured to go private. It was not. Joining us now, John Wilson, head of research and corporate governance at Quarterstone Capital Group in New York, joining us here in studios. Uh, John, I'd love to get your perspective in terms of the corporate governance aspect of this, in terms of what the board should have done and what the liability is of having one charismatic leader who is somewhat unhinged. Well, that's a great that's a great couple of questions, and I think I'll take the second one first. Right, this is a company that you, when you invest in this company, you are investing in one person, really, right? Because this is a company, it's a car company, but it has trouble making cars sometimes, right? It's deep in debt. Um, its signature product, the electric car, is less and less a novelty every day, right? As other manufacturers are coming up with their own lines, and so what are we investing? We're investing in the charisma of this one individual and the fact that he's 
such a fan following all over the world. People want these cars in part because of his persona. And as it starts to flag, then you have to ask yourself, okay, I need to take a step back, ask the question is, what am I investing in? Is this a company that can grow beyond, and this is what your, your point about the founder's syndrome essentially is, can we grow beyond this one individual to create uh, a sustainable going concern that can actually sustain itself over the long term? At this point, especially given their management troubles, it seems hard to imagine how they're going to do that. Now, you've written, obviously, not just about Tesla, but a variety of companies, and you also speak about how companies are not nimble enough when it comes to these issues. Could you just explain that? Well, um, a lot of companies are, have blind spots, right, about a lot of different cultural and social issues that they're facing, right? This is something that we look at. When leaders um, uh, are not in touch with what their other stakeholders are talking about, this can become a, a huge problem for companies. And one issue I think that are on people's minds right now is the question of sexual and gender-based violence, right? It's not quite the same thing as what Tesla's facing at the moment, but it's another cultural issue and an issue of leadership. I think going back a year or so, if you had asked folks, are you for or against sexual harassment, I think you would have pretty much found everyone to say they were against it. And yet, and yet so many of these companies um, found themselves facing allegations, credible allegations of cultures of sexual harassment, not just individual incidents, but whole cultures of sexual harassment um, and really being surprised by this. And that is what I talk about by not being nimble, not being aware of what's going on in your company or with its customers, its employees, its suppliers. And it, it prevents you from acting and it, and it leads to surprises when you hear things in the news. All right. So, you know, you raised sort of a question not to conflate sexual harassment with uh, securities manipulation charges that the <clears throat> SEC is, is going after Elon Musk for. There is, though, a question about the board here. Yes. With Tesla, as well as, as you said, in terms of what their role ought to be in setting a culture that is conducive to a lot of different points of view. And so I'm wondering if you could just speak about Tesla. I mean, where is the responsibility for their board? Well, here's the problem. So this is, this is an issue that we sometimes talk about, which is that corporate governance doesn't matter until it does. Right. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that people have known for a long time that Tesla's board is a problem, that many of the people on Tesla's board uh, are have real close relationships to to Elon Musk. Right? There are members of the board who are part of Solar City, which then they purchased, uh, which he also owned. Um, and what we're finding out also right now is that there is no one with CEO level leadership skills on the board who could take over if, C if he leaves. So these are all issues that we knew about. But Tesla's stock continued to rise because of, of Elon Musk. Suddenly, he's a problem, and we're looking to the board and recognizing its inability to deal with the crisis. All right, so you deal with a lot of boards, and you deal with a lot of companies. Do you feel like there is a critical mass of boards that recognize their role in setting up culture? And can you give us a sense of what it takes for them to play an active role in that? So I think that there are, I don't wanna, um, I think that what we, we're seeing here is a, is a problem of some boards. And I think there are other boards that are really trying to figure out you know, what the right way to go is. But we're dealing with new sets of issues all the time. There is a much greater awareness of the kinds of cultural issues that are going on all through you know, different companies, right? Not just Tesla, but you know, relating to sexual and gender-based violence, relating to racial equality, inequality you know, um, uh, of income and so forth. And, and the pro what boards need to do is they need to start to make themselves more aware 
of what their employees, their, their suppliers, their uh, customers are thinking about them. I think there's too much insularity on boards. There's, there's not enough turnover on boards. This is one uh, governance issue that we talk about a lot, is that here's an interesting fact. Most of the a majority of board members coming onto boards these days are member, uh, women or members of minority groups. However, board turnover is so low that the number of women, total, the total women and minorities is still less than 30%. And so the problem is entrenched board members, a culture where boards are recycling themselves and you need new blood in order to understand what, what the issues that are emerging for companies are. We're speaking with uh, John Wilson. He is the head of research and corporate governance at Cornerstone Capital Group. John, is there any connection in your mind between the performance of a corporate culture and the performance of a stock? In other words, can you make decent investment decisions, perhaps starting with the corporate governance issue? Mm -hmm. What I would say is, and one of the reasons why this is a challenge for investors, is that cultural issues tend to be longer term. As I said before, they tend to not matter until they do. And uh, you know, the example of Nike is a great one where they lost a lot of talent all of a sudden because of issues of sexual harassment in the company. And so if I, if I was an investor um, looking at a long-term uh, investment in a company, um, I would definitely take corporate governance into account. Now that may you know, not affect my short-term decisions about market sentiment and, this, and so forth, but if I'm not aware of the cultural and governance issues, then I'm opening myself up to uh, risk over the long term. You know, just real quick here, I'm struck by what someone once told me that you have one charismatic leader who the whole company hinges on, that company is more likely to experience fraud. Just real quick, has that been your experience as well? Um, yes, I think that's right. Because if you, ha if you are all about that one person, then other people tend to um, operate, first of all, without being, um, without accountability, right? Without transparency. And so they sort of get the, uh, the mindset of impunity, if you will. And I think that can happen both for other executives at the company and for the charismatic founder who may sort of begin to see themselves as invulnerable. And so that can happen. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, John Wilson, head of research and corporate governance at Cornerstone Capital Group talking about the connection between corporate governance, investments, and corporate performance. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. It's getting close to lunchtime in New York, so we want to talk about food. Uh, and Pim, we're very lucky. We're joined by the co-founders of Axel Foods, which is a quickly growing venture capital uh, firm looking at what we're going to be snacking on next that will actually be good for us. We have, luckily, uh, Lauren Jupiter and Jordan Gaspar here in our 1130 studios. So, Lauren, I want to start with you. What is Axel Foods? Uh, first of all, thanks for, for having us. Uh, we are a venture capital fund focused on packaged food and beverage companies. So we invest in the newest, you know, the healthiest foods out there um, and, and most delicious foods out there, but really companies ranging from startup all the way to 65 plus million of revenue and partner with them and really help them avoid the, the pitfalls along the way. Uh, Jordan, maybe you could speak to the issue that there are so many very large food companies, and I'm thinking of Danone and Campbell's Soup, and you know why, that are looking to expand their business, but either they don't know how to do it 
in today's environment or they're too big to take chances on things? And I'm wondering if you could speak to that and how you help them in those roles. Uh, absolutely. So we we are very familiar, obviously, with both of those organizations. Um, what we're finding right now in the climate is that you know large strategics are looking to either buy or invest in innovation. So there's a record amount of capital coming into the industry, and it's a lot of the corporates that we're talking about, the Cokes, the Pepsis, that are driving a lot of interest. Um, they're coming down earlier in the market. They're making investments in small brands. They're putting resources to work. Um, and everything um, from you know direct partnerships with you know specific small companies that they get excited about to partnering with funds. You know, obviously we have a pretty public partnership with Danone. Um, you know, in in particular, it's not just happening though with those organizations. We're seeing the retailers also activate, and so um, there's more and more shelf space that's becoming available from the largest retailers in the world, including Costco and Walmart and Kroger. Um, so it's across the board. What we're seeing is is that big food is getting very interested in the small guys. So Lauren, what does innovation mean in the food space right now? Considering the fact that you definitely have a packaging innovation to make people feel like you're getting something healthier versus trying to make that ice cream that you eat actually have zero calories and lots of protein and save your life and have no problems. So we think about innovation and what we actually call challenger brands in a variety of ways. So it can be the product, it can be the ingredient profile. Um, you know, as an example, we have a, a product in our portfolio called Four Sigmatic, which makes mushroom-based uh, coffees and powdered beverages, and that is an innovative ingredient profile. Um, innovation can also come in marketing and packaging and how that product is sort of delivered and communicated to the consumer. Um, and then the third step we sort of look at is innovation in terms of distribution and channel strategy. So we're seeing more and more brands look at direct-to-consumer. We're looking at more brands look at disrupting the office space and going to direct-to-consumer in that capacity. And so we think about it really in those three buckets, product, marketing, and distribution. Jordan, you are described as a reformed corporate lawyer, but also you are the kid's snack taste tester, correct? That's your official title <laughs> that is there. That's my official title. Okay. Um, one of the companies I believe that you've got something to do with is uh, Kid Fresh. Yep. Tell us about that and maybe use it as an example, how you found it and what your role ends up being. Uh, where we are thrilled to talk about Kid Fresh. So something that's important to understand is that Lauren and I are the proud moms of four kids eight and under. And so it's a big part of our thesis is that we are investing in the companies that we are actually putting on the table for our kids. And it's a big part of our philosophy is that the, the grocery store is going to look fundamentally different. And so we're really putting our money where um, our kids' mouths are, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Um, Kid Fresh was a company we came across in 2016. They were in the market and had great traction. It's a New York-based brand that is a better-for-you frozen kids platform that's really geared towards um, introducing hidden vegetables and sort of reinventing traditional favorites like mac and cheese and you know chicken fingers and, and you know, uh, fish sticks and things like that. Um, at the time of our investment, you know, Matt Cohen, the founder, had really sort of gotten some great traction. And just as we were investing, he happened to pick up a national partnership with Walmart to complement his Target and Kroger and Ahold business. So we really enjoyed kind of working with Matt over the past two years as he's been scaling really quickly and um, certainly has found himself in a great position right now where everyone's thinking about you know innovation in kids' platforms and who's going to be sort of the the going forward leader. And Frozen's obviously one of the hottest categories now. But it's also in 
know, these are traditional foods that people, you know, all across America are eating. This is just a better for you version. And I will say as a working mother myself of two young children, one of the big challenges is making sure that you actually have something on the table at night. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's much more basic than just having something healthy sometimes. And and it's not just in frozen meal solutions. We're also, we're investing heavily into kids' beverages. We think that right now is a time it's ripe for innovation on shelf where we just made a big investment into a kid's water play. You know, and for us, it's a boxed water that's almost like it's an essence water for kids. And so it was launching 10,000 doors this summer. And it's an alternative to some of the, you know, sort of more traditional players that we've seen, like the Capri Suns in the market. But, you know, for us, the idea that we're now going to have an offering for kids where it's a no sugar alternative is, you know, pretty powerful. I was definitely the bad mom who brought Capri Sun for a snack. So (laughs) I'm going to confess my guilt. Uh, Lauren, I I do want to just get your thoughts on when you have a smaller company scaling up in food businesses is traditionally very difficult. How do you help with that? So, you know, we think about ourselves as dot connectors. And what we like to do is help connect the dots for these brands between the resources they need in the industry. It's the relationships, it's the retailers, the distributors, the strategics who may someday be their exit partners. And we create those relationships early and and deeply as these brands grow. Um, But that being said, I think there's more and more um, sort of resources out there for brands to scale up. A lot of them are working with outsourced manufacturers, co-packers. Um, there's a lot of support from the retailers out there who are looking to bring these innovative products to shelf. And so it's a very exciting time, I think, to be a food entrepreneur. And you know, not to mention how receptive I think consumers are today to, to new healthy brands. Just uh, quickly, Jordan, give you about 20 seconds. What is the biggest thing that you've learned working together about the whole process of investing and then seeing it through to production it's a, it's a wild ride um i think that you know listen for us lauren and i are, are entrepreneurs ourselves and you know we look at excel we started only a couple of years ago and things have changed dramatically over the past couple of years um, it's really important to have people around you that challenge you and make you think critically about your business but also um to you know really be able to rely on that you trust them and so we think of ourselves as a partner for our founders that it's a real brain trust and you know it's, it's a, a different type of partnership all right we got to leave it there but i want to thank you both very much uh, jordan gaspar managing partner and lauren jupiter co-founder and managing partner of the venture capital fund axel foods Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.